This is Meatless, a podcast about eating. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food and drink writer. I'll be having conversations with chefs, writers, and more about how their personal and political beliefs determine whether or not they eat meat. The show will ask the question, how do identity, culture, economics, and history affect a diet? In this episode, I talk to Soleil Ho, food writer, host of Bitch Media's Propaganda podcast, and co-host of the Racist Sandwich podcast. She has co-authored a graphic novel called Meal with Blue Del Conti that will be out October 1st from Iron Circus Comics. It follows the professional and romantic life of a young chef who's obsessed with entomophagy, the eating of insects, a field Soleil has become an expert in. We talked about the book, the tech industry's obsession with cricket flour, and what it all means for vegans and vegetarians. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I'm such a fan. I'm such a huge fan of you. And as again, I think when we met in real life, I was like, your voice is just like it is on the radio. And again, <laughs> I, again, I'm just like, oh, it's racist sandwich is happening. Um, so this is actually my first episode that I'm doing not in person. Can, can you tell me where you are right now geographically? Yeah. So I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota right now in my bedroom closet. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. I'm in Houston, Texas, actually, to tell everyone, which because that's not normal for me. Um, and yeah, we're going to we're going to do this on Skype. Um, so so like, can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Sure. Yeah, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and we mainly ate well, okay. So my mom was a single mom for most of my life. And so, and she worked in the fashion industry. So she was super busy all the time. And so when she would get home, you know, pretty frequently she would pull out the drawer of menus and kind of fan them out in front of my sister and I and just say like, pick one, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, we, we got a lot of delivery. So like Chinese, Indian, Vietnamese, Thai, uh, yeah. So that was kind of the bulk of our daily foods. But then she would, she would make all kinds of things. She was really much, she was, she was the kind of person who would keep like the gourmet recipe books, you know, Mm -hmm. um, she loves that stuff or like the William Sonoma, like, uh, cookbooks that they have for like soup or hors d'oeuvres and things like that. She, yeah, she was an experimenter. So that sounds like a very like New York city way of growing up. <laughs> to eat a yeah, delivery. It definitely was. <laughs> and I love those William Sonoma cookbooks. Yeah. Those were such a staple of that of like when we grew up, the the teaching people how to cook through William Sonoma, which I always felt was so classy. Like when I went to the mall, I was like, oh, this is this is this is life here. <laughs> um Oh yeah. I mean I loved tasting all the oils and the vinegars oh, and yeah. the bread cubes. Like that was <laughs> a highlight of the weekend. <laughs> Uh, so you've been on a few sides of the food world. You've been a chef, you're a writer, you have racist sandwich, and you're also the host of Propaganda. Um, but how and when in your life did you know that food would be your professional focus? Um, gosh, you know, like, honestly, it was, it was when I graduated from college, and I graduated in 2009, that's when the recession really hit, right? The economy mm-hmm. tanked. And I had sort of like vague notions of 
going into academia or um, working for a museum because I was a history major and I was really excited about like research. Um, and that sort of closed up when I realized slowly that I wasn't going to be able to get a job in any of the fields for which my bachelor's degree prepared me. So I went into farming. I, I started woofing, you know, uh, so I signed up with the Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. And so I just was an intern on a farm for a season and it was really inspiring, you know, like the, the actual farm part, the, the farmer was kind of a super duper Catholic and it was not quite like the most compatible <laughs> uh, workplace. Um, but working with vegetables and working with animals and, you know, working with food on this intimate level that I never really experienced before, that was like really, really important to me. And so after the season, I, I just started interning at restaurants in Minneapolis and um, writing about food on my off time to just kind of like, I don't know, use my degree <laughs> a little bit and use my training a little bit. And so, yeah, from there, it just was a constant in my life until today. Amazing. Uh, and you co-wrote a new book, Meal, with Blue Delaconte, uh, that focuses on entomophagy. Uh, which is the eating of insects. How did this project come about? So, yeah, um, Blue reached out to me. Uh, I I had been a fan of her work, and she'd been a fan of mine, but we never really talked. Um, but Blue reached out to me out of nowhere, mm -hmm. essentially, um, last year, to ask if I'd be interested in working on this book project. And she had already written the bulk of the script, honestly. And she wanted me essentially to be a sensitivity reader, mm -hmm. but also to like add chunks to it. So like a little bit more involved than just reading. Right. Um, and so, yeah, like we, we talked it over, you know, I had never really thought too hard about entomophagy before. Mm -hmm. I had, you know, I had like absorbed all of the rhetoric and I had eaten insects before, but I never really thought about it. And the way the book tackles it was so interesting to me. Just the idea that, like, we talk a lot about how insects are a really good protein source, food of the future, blah, 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 right? Mm -hmm. But we don't really pay much due diligence to the cultures and the traditional food ways from mm -hmm. which these insects came. And, of course, that is, like, exactly my wheelhouse. So I was, like, all aboard, you know. I was super <laughs> excited about that part of it. And so just from doing that, I started doing more research into, like, who eats bugs, why do they eat bugs, you know, where. And I just became obsessed. And so, uh, over the course of the year, you know, collaborating with blue and like adding bits and pieces, developing, you know, ideas in this book, I learned a lot. And I, um, I'm a huge fan now of just <laughs> people who eat bugs. I think they're really cool. <laughs> and are you doing any more work on, on this subject now, now that you've kind of immersed yourself in it? Yeah, uh, so I had a lot of research on my hands that I had done just reading and reporting for the book that just never made it in because, you know, it, it is like a fiction book. Mm -hmm. Like, there's you can't just, it's not a research paper. Right. And so I had all of this stuff in my files and all of these thoughts. And so I sent all of that to UC Berkeley, who, who had this, like, food and farming fellowship with um, – Molly Wollen and Michael Pollan. And so I was like, Hey, like, can you give me money to just investigate <laughs> bugs? And so they said, yes. And so I'm reporting out a story about entomophagy in central Japan, which I'm super excited about. I'm going in the fall to 
this landlocked region um, in the province Gifu, um, where they eat wasps. Wasps. It's really hard to say wasp. <laughs> where they eat wasps. <laughs> and um, bear hornets as well. Like the giant hornets are about like oh an gosh. inch and a half, two inches long. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm super stoked about it. Just I'll be making some audio and doing some writing and hopefully someone will pick up the story. Amazing. Amazing. And uh, I remember reading in the book that tarantulas taste like seafood. Have you tasted a tarantula? I've tasted a leg. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> it tastes a lot like... <laughs> especially when you batter and fry it it ends up tasting a lot like a soft shell crab which is like one of my favorite foods so i love tarantula that's amazing i think i can just say it yeah. <laughs> where do they where is that traditionally consumed in cambodia okay cool cool um so you kind of touched on this but i have personally only encountered arguments around eating insects from like techie entrepreneurs who want you to buy their cricket flower energy balls and it's very you know dystopian in my view um but in meal you present such kind of an exciting historical cultural and culinary perspective and there's a little about how insects could be the way for future populations to sustainably get protein, but unlike with the tech people, it's not the focus. Um, I wanted to get your what you think about that kind of techie context in which the eating insects has, has fallen in the mainstream, sort of, um, and is, you know, it's super white, and uh, but that's gotten more attention than, you know, these the tarantulas of, that taste like seafood that are traditionally eaten in Cambodia? Like, you know, why are we talking about energy balls when we could be talking about that? Right. Yeah. So the main reason is that I think we are very much invested. We, as in like just people who are thinking about food, right, right. in Western culture, we're very much invested in appealing to an audience, like a perceived audience of white upper middle class consumers. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, like for that reason, crickets and grasshoppers are the face of entomophagy in the West because they're very friendly, you know, mm -hmm. they're, they're very PR ready, um, media savvy insects, unlike tarantulas, unlike, you know, flies or grubs. I think they're just an easier sell, mm -hmm. um, you know, for a variety of reasons, but they're just, they're, they're less hostile, you know, they're very, uh, focus grouped in mm -hmm. a sense. Yes. And so one thing that I found really interesting in my, in my investigations and my research was, you know, there are these like really interesting tech led initiatives to, to ranch them essentially mm -hmm. to raise crickets in the U S. And so they have these facilities that can raise like a billion individuals at a time. Mm -hmm. And like that boggles the mind, right? Like a billion right. creatures in this, in this building. Um, and they are working on ways to automate that too, because crickets are nocturnal. And so you have to feed them at night and, you know, it's harder to pay people like staff to work overnight. So it's a lot easier to just feed them with robots. Mm -hmm. And so there's like all of that stuff too going on. Um, so one thing that I find really troubling about that is the idea of a monoculture, which I right. think if we want to talk like honestly about sustainability, we can't have more monocultures. Right. Like that is just not going to work. Um, you know, if the cricket collapses and we get in this position where like we are dependent on crickets, you know, uh, what's going to happen? You know, um, right. it's 
and if you're raising a billion individuals in one building, disease is going to spread really, really fast, mm-hmm. especially if they're all the same species. Right. And so, like, those sorts of considerations, we're not seeing too much, uh, like, discussion of. But, like, that's right. one thing that I'm afraid of because we're so overly invested in appealing to this consumer who's afraid of, like, spiders. Right, right. You know? Right. Um, so there's that little bit of it. And then I one thing I found fascinating um, in the course of working on this book was the idea that insects are going to feed the world. Right. Um, you know, like, because they're so efficient to raise and da da like, all that stuff. Um, but the central contradiction to that is that the majority of the world eats insects. Right. They already do. And the initiatives that are banding about this rhetoric are the ones that are selling this, you know, very premium priced product to people in like Silicon Valley mm-hmm. who are not in want of food. And so like, there's that contradiction to me is like, they're invested in feeding the world, but they're not actually feeding the world. Right. You know, for the most part, right. there are some organizations that have opened up like uh, processing plants and factories, like, outside of the U.S., uh, which is great. But, like, the majority are just, like, making, like, you know, super fancy um, exotic foods, essentially, mm-hmm. for yes. people with money. And so, like, that was the weird part for me is, like, why do we care that Westerners are eating bugs? Because right. we're not the ones with the problem. Right. <laughs> we're not the ones who actually have to – like, we're not at the front lines of the overpopulation debate or, like, you know uh, – scarcity or like water wars or any of that stuff. Right. Right. Like we are pretty well insulated, um, by design. And so it seems intellectually dishonest to me. Yeah. Why do you think that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, you kind of, you wrote about, um, sort of in a similar vein, your recent taste piece about the consumption of dog meat and the racist perceptions around that. Um, like I, as even as someone who doesn't eat meat, like I read that and was just like, well, thank God someone is pointing this out because you know, the hypocrisy around the way people talk about various animals is just, no one really considers it in, in the way that you did. Um, and there's kind of a similar thing like this, this obsession with, um, who eats what makes it more legitimate in a way. And, and I don't, mm-hmm. do you see, does, do you see that, that these things kind of relate to each other at all? Yeah. Um, especially along the lines of like otherizing, right. And like using food to cast someone else as a barbarian or inferior. And so like, yes, with dogs, like it's been used it's been weaponized. Like mm-hmm. the act of eating dogs has been weaponized against East Asians, Southeast Asians, Pacific Islanders, especially in war. Um, and just in like acts of imperialism, like mm-hmm. it's been a tool to illustrate how backwards people like me are. And, you know, it's a practice that's like pretty regional. It's pretty, um, it's not a universal thing in those regions. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, using that to justify, westernization intervention you know all of that stuff has been really like blatant right and so the same kind of the same applies to insects where you know people associate insect eaters at, with like dirtiness and like poverty and that's you know that's a big like stereotype of people who eat bugs it's like they eat them because they're desperate 
you know, they eat because they don't know better or they, they can't eat chicken or whatever. When that's not really the truth, you know, there's this great example in the book about tarantulas, actually, you know, we've been talking about tarantulas, but, um, there's a stereotype that people started eating them during the like Khmer Rouge regime and, you know, because there was no food, but that ignores the fact that people have been eating those tarantulas even from even before that regime, like it was a delicacy. And so like, there's that, there's that notion of like, who can be a gourmand Mm -hmm. and why? Right. Right. Like people in Cambodia can appreciate tarantulas for their taste, for their delicate flavor, for the way they cook. Um, and you know, they don't, they don't only eat out of like this animalistic instinct (laughs) for protein. Right. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. I, you know, I know that you're not a vegetarian or vegan, but um, there is, you know, a bit of a discussion now that this is becoming more more of a conversation uh, around whether insects count sort of um, as meat. And um, I recently was offered uh, some ants. Uh, to pair with a cachaça and was told, oh, you must have the ants with the cachaça or you can't really understand the cachaça. And I was like, and someone else was like, no, she's vegan. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to, if I can't understand cachaça without (laughs) eating the ants, I'm just going to eat the ants right now. Um, But I didn't feel like great about it as a person who, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm navigating right now, like my own limits with, with meat and with animal products right now. And, you know, I, when I ate them, I was like, uh, I don't, uh, I don't know if I want to do that, but I think (laughs) I, 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 like, I'm, I'm interested in like, even though this isn't like your, your world really of like being vegetarian or vegan, but like, do you, what do you think? Like if you had a vegan friend who came to you and was like, I just don't know if I should eat uh, you know, some cricket flour, if, if that's a really, if, if that seems like a sustainable way to eat protein, then maybe I should, but you know, what is, what is your take on, on that? Oh man. Uh, um, I guess I, I don't feel very good about telling people, I don't know. I'm not like the, the morality police of course, by yeah. any means. <laughs> um, <laughs> even though people try to pretend I am, I'm not. And I have, I'm flawed in that way. But I, I do think that, you know, if you are a vegan because you don't want to take life, like mm-hmm. that is, you know, like a, a pound of cricket flour, I believe contains like thousands and thousands of individuals. Mm-hmm. Like the scale of, of life taking yeah. in a pound of cricket flour is like extremely high. Um, if you want to think about numbers, right. Mm-hmm. Versus like a single steak. Um, so it's hard, right. It's right. like a weird, it's a weird thing to grapple with because with insects, especially like it's just, it's hard to think of them as individuals as like alive. Right. And, <laughs> um, that's why it's so easy to kill them. Right. right. And so if you want to think about it as far as like a harm done sort of thing. Right. Um, I don't know. It gets really sticky, right? Yeah. No, it does. I mean, I like, I felt bad about eating the ants, but yesterday I slapped a mosquito that was on my boyfriend's forehead. So, you know, like where did, where do we draw lines? <laughs> <laughs> like, cause I killed, yeah. I killed that mosquito on instinct. I was just like, ah, uh, you have to die. Um, but I, would I feel bad about eating cricket flour? Yeah. I don't know. It's, <laughs> these are the things we must uh 
we must ask ourselves. Um, but yeah, so to kind of go back to some more uh, political type issues, I guess, um, we talk a lot on this podcast about uh, veganism's like whiteness. So I would love, I, I always want to get like outsider kind of perspective on like, how do you perceive veganism? Like, do you perceive it, which like my own fear deep down is that it is a first world folly, that it is, that it is kind of a meaningless um, thing. Um, but I, like, how, how do you perceive veganism? Like both as a cuisine and as like this uh, movement? Oh man. Okay. So as someone who has been a chef and mm-hmm. someone who appreciates just the act of cooking, I find veganism and any sort of like restrictive cuisine, right. Where like you are, just you have to exclude a certain category of foods right. as a rule. Um, I find those really inspiring, actually, mm-hmm. because you have to be more creative. You know, like it's this is why I hate steakhouses. I fucking <laughs> abhor steakhouses. They're so boring. They're the worst because it's just like it's just a meat. It's a steak. Right. It's like you salt and pepper it. You sear it. You're done. And mm-hmm. just like ugh, it's like so boring. And so like you know, vegan food at its best is like extremely creative, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, you have to, as the chef or as the cook, appeal to someone for whom, like, the steak is potentially an alternative, an easy one. Um, and so you have to appeal to the senses. And you have such a variety of things to choose from to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, bringing out, like, savory notes in, like, tomatoes or parsnips, just like, you know, vegetables and fruits is so, it's such a challenge. Mm-hmm. And so intellectually and just, like, as far as craft goes, I'm way more impressed with someone who can make a really good vegan meal than a omnivorous one. Right. Right. Oh. Is that right to call it a meal of the omnivorous? I don't know. <laughs> I meat do. inclusive. Meat inclusive. One. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, but do, do you like, do I, we've talked about this a little, but you know, as a movement, like, do you have any thoughts on, on how veganism like functions in the world kind of? Um, yeah, it is like, I don't know, like I have a hard time personally because I have seen so many examples of vegan companies Mm -hmm. using really colonialist rhetoric, of course, um, especially when talking about indigenous foods, right. And Mm -hmm. especially like, for example, there's a company that makes a vegan fish sauce and, you know, they bandy themselves as like the first ones and like, look how gross the process of making fish sauce is. Why would anyone eat that? And, you know, there's pictures of like piles of dead anchovies, right. Which is like, yeah, it's kind of yucky, but like, it's what Vietnamese people eat every day. Like the majority, right. Like it is something that we honor and love and is like an integral part of our identity. Um, and so like, I understand the tendency to, I don't know, like to be like, look at this great alternative to this thing that like you might be grossed out by. Um, but gross is such a, you know, it's such a context based thing. Um, and also like they were erasing the work of Buddhist Vietnamese people who have made vegan fish sauce for like centuries. And so like, there's that part of it too, where it's just like, come on, like, yeah, you're not the first just because you have a nice label. Right, right, right. No, that, yeah. Veganism is built on, uh, on labels, <laughs> on, on cute labels. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think 
<laughs> that's awful and when I went you know the same thing I've written a little bit about it but like with tempe or something like that where people are like look what we've created and it's like no you you've completely you know most vegans eat tempe and then don't know that it's an Indonesian food and that that just seems so insane to me um and then there's you know there's so many issues which like I'm I just talked to someone about you know different you know, butters or alternative butters. And it's like, well, we have to be concerned with like the carbon footprint of that butter versus like maybe if you live somewhere where butter is being made, maybe it would be better to eat the cow butter than the butter that was made in a facility that was, you know, thousands of miles away. You know, it's a, there's all these concerns that I, I hope uh, become, become more of a conversation topic among vegans. Um, but wow, right. I, I would, yeah. I need to look up that fish sauce. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's like a pH in there. It's like fish sauce oh or oh something. I don't know. It's silly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like I, I, I'm totally behind veganism as like a political stance mm -hmm. and a set of principles. And, you know, I think if coupled with like, you know, like I don't believe it's essential or let me rephrase that. I don't believe it's possible to be conservative and vegan, right? right. Like, <laughs> I don't think that that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I want to include veganism as like one facet of like a broader set of communitarian values that are like meant to uplift all people in the world and, you know, give everyone the means to control what they put in their bodies, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so for you, is cooking a political act? I'd say yes. You know, um, the most surface level way that that is a political act to me is in terms of my own like sense of being a woman mm -hmm. and cooking. Um, because, you know, for so much of my career that made me a minority mm -hmm. in the kitchen, right? Like in restaurants, um, people would assume that I was the pastry chef, right? Which is like, Pastry is a fine category of cooking. Um, it's just not what I was doing. But it, it is a category of cooking in which women are often siloed in fine dining. And that's like an important part of the formation of that role and way we think about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, being visible and doing what I did was political. Just cooking and just sticking it out with everyone else um, and keeping up and even being better than the men around me was really important to me. Absolutely. Is there any way in, uh, beyond gender that, that you found it to be political? Yeah. Um, I mean, gosh, just in terms of like identity, which is such a corny thing to say, right? Like <laughs> <laughs> me cooking like Vietnamese and like Cantonese food is an important part of kind of hanging on to my family traditions, mm -hmm. you know? And like, cementing my sense of identity within those things. And, you know, like I can't speak those languages mm -hmm. and I can't really converse with my grandparents, but I can make food that they recognize. And for me, that's really important. And it's so corny. I'm so sorry. No, that's amazing. <laughs> corny as fuck. No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for talking with me. Oh, thank you for having me. This was really good. Oh, great.